This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm David Spears coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. And with me this week, ABC political reporter Jane Norman on Ngunnawal country in Canberra and Radio Sydney Afternoons presenter Josh Zeps on Gadigal country in Sydney. Welcome to you both. G'day Spearsy. Hello. Now we've got some great questions this week. I know I know, I say that every week, but we do have some interesting ones this week. We're going to go from the shifting sands in US politics, what that means for Australia, to what's being done to prepare for the next flooding event whenever that comes. Let's start, though, with the question from Greg, which goes to the midterms that we've uh, seen this week in the United States and where that leaves US politics. Greg asks, well, in fact, Greg points out, firstly, that he's an avid watcher of ABC News and current affairs. Greg wonders why there's not more discussion on possible effects to Australia if the Republicans were to win in 2024, that's the presidential election. It would have huge implications, Greg says, uh, if they were to withdraw from the AUKUS deal and possibly many other implications as well. Now, I'll just have a first crack at that. I don't think either the Republicans or Democrats would likely withdraw from the AUKUS deal. It does seem to be a very good deal for America for its forced posture in the Pacific and so on. But look, there clearly may be other implications elsewhere, particularly some of the conversations in among some Republicans about whether to wind back support for Ukraine. That could have implications for us and the world as well. Jane, what do you think of the implications? Well, I think predicting the outcome of any election right now is pretty fraught, uh, Spearsy. But, you know, let, let's say that the Republicans continue their march to the White House in 2024. I agree with you. I think the AUKUS agreement is very unlikely to go. Like, let's look at the two contenders. You've got probably a Florida governor called Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is probably a bit more predictable. He's an, he's a lawyer. He served in the Navy. He fits the mould of a more typical Republican politician. And if you look at some of his forays into foreign policy, it's been kind of predictable of the Republican mould. He has condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He was among the critics of Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. So when it comes to his foreign policy approach, it seems like it might be kind of similar to what Joe Biden's doing. And if you look at the AUKUS agreement, at the end of the day, US has a lot to get out of it too. Uh, yes, it is giving something to Australia. It's sharing some serious secrets. But at the same time, it's it's sharing those secrets so that Australia has the capacity to hopefully, potentially, uh, curb China's rise in the region. And that's kind of where Australia plays a really integral role for America because we have strategically a very important spot in the Pacific. And so I think it would be hard to imagine that um, regardless of who's in the White House, that there would be any moves to get rid of that agreement just because the ramifications would be so severe. I mean, the whole idea, Josh, when just on August is, you know, most likely we end up with the same submarine model uh, they're interoperable. That that means the US uh, has an extra 12 uh, nuclear submarines eventually. And yes, there are caveats around if and when this will all be delivered and at what price and all of that. But from the American point of view, you can see why this is a pretty good deal for them. What do you think? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about AUKUS. I think AUKUS is a distraction from the long-term kind of interplay between Australia's interests and America's. I've spent most of my professional life living in the States, and it's quite striking from an Australian perspective just how little Americans care or notice what? Australia. What? <laughs> uh, Bill, in Bill Bryson's book about <laughs> Australia, he, he does a, a LexisNexis search of all the references to Australia in American news publications, and he compares it to other things that get talked about in the American press and concludes that 
that Americans care about Australia marginally more than they care about bananas, but a lot less than they care about ice cream. That's the level of... Uh, you mean they're not, they're not gripped by the debate over multi-employer bargaining in the Australian Parliament right now? It just doesn't show up on the front page <laughs> of the New York the Times. You're not helping the on our shoulder here. <laughs> it's not... So I think, and I'm reminded of when I think, whenever I think about Australia's national security interests and the United States and its so-called pivot to the Asia-Pacific, I'm always reminded of the old adage that nations don't have friends and nations don't have enemies, nations have interests. And Mm. our job is to make sure that the United States' interests align with Australia's interests. They're not going to protect us in the future because we have the same submarines. They're not going to protect us in the future because we went to Vietnam and we went to Iraq. They're going to protect us in the future if and only if it's in America's national interest to do so. In terms of the Republican Party and the question from the listener about what happens if the Republicans win in 2024, there is a battle for the heart and soul of the Republicans. You've got this resurgent kind of populist, Trumpist worldview, which is really quite isolationist and quite America first. And that's a a very un-nostalgic look at, at American foreign policy. In a way, Trump may have been the first president really of the post-war era to sort of accept that America as an empire is declining and America is no longer the world's policeman and shouldn't be. And then you've got the traditional sort of uh, George H.W. Bush era uh, neoconservative worldview that is still very powerful inside the Republican Party, that, but that is just quiet at the moment because it's currently losing uh, the you know the battle for hearts and minds in Middle America. But you know can cert- could certainly stage a comeback, and that would be a much more pro-Australian, uh, I suppose, pro-world cop attitude towards global affairs. But I mean, I would just finally add in the question about Australia's interests and uh, you know a Republican presidency in twenty twenty four. The big thing for me also is climate chaos and having a a United States that can lead the world towards some kind of solution. We are the most vulnerable Western democracy to climate chaos and to extreme weather events. And so it's sort of imperative on us just in terms of having as smooth a run through the 21st century as we can. What we really want is to have an administration in the states that's going to be able to get all the countries together and do something proactive about climate change. I think that's a really good point about climate change. The other point, and just to pick up on, I I guess, the implication of this question from Greg, the midterms that we saw during the week, um, yes, the Republicans made gains, no great big red wave, though, didn't do as nearly as well as expected, particularly the Trump handpicked candidates. What does that mean? It means Trump is somewhat less likely to win the nomination. Obviously, he's still one of the favourites, if not the favourite, with Ron DeSantis, and then somewhat less likely to actually win against Biden if he were the nominee. Now, if Trump were to become president again, you've got that climate change question that I think Josh has absolutely nailed there. You've also got the question about how would he deal with China? That is a big question mark in my mind. I have no idea what approach Trump, Mark II, might take towards uh, Xi Jinping. That obviously has a big implication for Australia as well. But there's so many you know, what ifs before we get to that point. Yeah. Can I also just say, David, I'm not that bothered, really. I, honestly, I think we can be a little bit too scared about Trump and about where America goes on China. I mean, both sides of politics are very strong on China at the moment. Trump isn't going to be sucking up to China. If anything, he's going to be full of bombast about it. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for Australia's long-term national security interests. I mean, containing China in this region is kind of an imperative. And if we can take a back seat and allow the Americans to be the bad guys uh, and maintain as good a relationship as we can within a context of containing China, then all the better, regardless of which which, uh, which party is in power. And I'll also just say, I'm going to call it here, Donald Trump will not be 
another will not be president again. Yeah, well, that, that, that may be right, but the dynamic between the US president and China, Xi Jinping, uh, will have an implication on whether we see a, a trade war worsening, whether we do see progress or regress on climate change as well. These are the two powers that are really going to decide the the, True. the, you know, the fate on climate change as well. I so. guess if there's one thing to look at, you look at how history has played out. We survived the first Trump presidency fairly well unscathed, and he is, of course, a very transactional isolationist president. And I think you have to remember... In terms of deals, he even gritted his teeth and honoured the refugee resettlement deal that his predecessor, Obama, had struck with Malcolm Turnbull. He hated that deal, but he still stuck with it. So, I mean, I'm not advocating in any way for a Trump rerun, but uh, I think Australia survived his first uh, term, you know, pretty much unscathed. Look, the industrial relations debate in Australia may not be cracking the front page of the New York Times, but it is on the minds of some of our listeners. Romney asks... Uh, When the Gillard-Rudd government instituted the Fair Work Act, many called it work choices light, while others said it was a return to the pre-Keating era. So which one was being hyperbolic and where are we at now? Is Fair Work pre-Keating or post-Howard? It's an interesting question from Romney. Jane, I better let you have a go at that. <laughs> Thanks, Fizzy. Uh, look, I wasn't I dodged that around... one, didn't I, Jane? <laughs> well, we're coming back to you, don't worry. I wasn't around reporting in the Howard era, but my understanding is that Julia Gillard, as the Workplace Relations Minister in the Rudd government, basically unpicked the Howard government's work choices changes. Now, those changes went way too far. They were totally ideologically driven and really contributed to Howard's downfall. But what Gillard did was she brought in the Fair Work Act, she simplified a whole bunch of awards, and she introduced the better off overall test into enterprise bargaining, which was a Paul Keating innovation. And I I guess the boot kind of replicated Howard's no disadvantage test, which came in the dying days of his government. But I guess if you look at where we're at now, EBAs were introduced by Keating. The changes were made by Julie Gillard. But in the decade or so since, both unions and businesses will agree that the bargaining system has kind of broken. Like critics say part of the problem is the complexity of the boot. And that is something that the Albanese government is promising to address with these changes. But like, if you look at the share of the workforce covered by EBAs now, it has dramatically fallen in the past decade. I think right now, something like 15% of the workforce is covered by a current EBA. The rest are on lower awards or on agreements that were struck like five years ago. So their conditions haven't improved in the meantime. Mm. Zombie deals, right? So there's clearly a big problem here. So where has it left us? Well, the Albanese government has come to power, promising to, in its words, get wages moving. And to do that, it's saying we need to fix the enterprise bargaining system. The question, David Spears, is whether the multi-employer bargaining proposal is the solution and whether that can actually get wages moving again. It's highly contested, very controversial, and at this stage, you know, negotiations are continuing, but it'll be interesting to see if if, if that does get through Parliament. And, and Jane, I think you've done a terrific job in answering a difficult question from Romney, so uh, applause. On the, on the question you pose at the end there, though, will this get wages moving without crippling the economy? One of the hard things here is to make an objective assessment of this, because there is no modelling or evidence, really, that the government's put forward uh, about what this will do to wages, what it will do to productivity, what it will do to the economy. And I get it, these things are difficult to model, but basically the government's asking 
the Senate uh, and all of us, I suppose, to trust them uh, that this will get wages moving. Now, you, you assume, Josh, that it will help, particularly in those uh, low-paid feminised sectors like childcare. The concern is what happens in the rest of the economy with this multi-employer bargaining, but there isn't really a lot of evidence that we can rely on here to say, you know, here's the impact no. it will have. I mean, I think that's right, but I think this is one of those big policy areas where to some extent you have to take it on ideological faith. Uh, I, I sort of... I claim that too many of us talk with too much certainty about too many things, and this is one of those complex areas on which I really don't comment because I actually don't know enough to know. And even even economists who seem to know a lot don't seem to know enough to know. So I think you're right that in the absence of evidence, this is ultimately an ideological policy decision that you're either going to take on faith or not, and then you're going to see where the chips fall after you've done it. But I, I mean, I can't speak intelligently on that because I just don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's wise. I think one of the things the government has agreed to as part of this process of the last week is to have some sort of review of this. Is that right, Jane? Is it within 12 months or, or, or so of operation? I think that would make a lot of sense, right, to really be able to test how it's going. Absolutely. So this was put forward um, as an amendment by uh, you know one of the Teal Independents, Allegra Spender, the member for Wentworth. So that was put forward in the lower house. Of course, Labor got this bill through on its numbers in the lower house. And so what Tony Burke, the minister, has said is, okay, I'm open to that. He has, to be fair, shown an incredible willingness to compromise on this bill. He's made a raft of concessions so far. Uh, we can talk about the speed with which the government's trying to get this through, but Tony Burke has said there'll be more reviews of this. There'll be more amendments put forward. So if, if there is to be a review 12 months after the legislation passes, we'll let that be part of perhaps the Senate process. But David Spears, when I was um, doing some sort of reading about these changes and lead up to this podcast, I just was reminded of a conversation I had with a union official who is deeply involved in EBAs, like this person really knows their stuff. And at the start of our conversation, he said to me, you know, industrial relations reform in Australia is kind of like quicksand. The bigger the changes, the quicker it'll sink. And I just, it just has really struck me this week that you've just had to look at the government's ambition and how much it's had to sort of narrow its ambition already uh, in anticipation of this kind of battle it's facing in the Senate. Oh, look, it's a, it's a really interesting point, right? Because we know reform is hard and getting harder to do in Australia, but particularly IR reform. I mean, anyone who thought the government <laughs> would be able to announce something and um, everyone would hold hands uh, as they were at the job summit, forget it. Once you get down to the detail, uh, out they come. Look, we know cost of living has been on the minds of everybody, and we've got a lot of questions about that over recent months. We've got one from Julian, which is an interesting take on this. Julian says, wouldn't it be better to specify the things we're spending money on, which are driving up inflation. We all need to buy groceries, bread, refrigerated items, pay for petrol, power bills. So what discretionary spending is Philip Lowe trying to discourage in order to halt the rate rises? Uh, Julian says, shouldn't he just say, stop buying new cars, stop taking holidays, don't dine out, stop pampering <laughs> yourself, stop your subscriptions. <laughs> Josh, stop pampering yourself. If Philip Lowe told you to stop pampering yourself, do you think, uh, would, would you do it? I, mean, I stopped pampering myself when I had kids, David. I mean, I, what's, what luxury is left in life uh, once, you've got, once you've got five-year-olds? I don't think that's the point, is it? I mean, the point isn't to stop us from buying things. The point is to stop prices from going up 
quite so much. And I understand that the demand outstripping supply is part of that, but the supply part of the equation seems to be what that listener is missing. We still have big problems that, you know, to some extent are hangovers from COVID, to some extent are, are, causes, are caused by the destabilisation of Europe uh, because of the mm. Ukraine war. And, you know, we're not in, we're not responsible for the fact that if you want a new car, you have to wait nine months for it. And that then means that people are paying much more for a second hand car because at least they can get it now. Like the economy is too complicated to be to be broken down into I'm not I'm no longer going to buy a gold class tin- cinema ticket for myself. So I'm not sure that does it. Look, you're, you're right. The main drivers of inflation are what are called non-discretionary items. They're things like food staples. Um, energy, we know, has been a big driver of inflation and will continue to be a big driver of inflation. Petrol uh, as well. There's no doubt about that. But look, Philip Lowe has pointed out over each month when he puts up rates, he's pointed out it is more broad-based than that. It has, it's not just on the supply side, it has crept into other areas as well. But look, it's it's difficult to stop people dining out, Jane. I mean, uh, tell someone in retail or hospitality that you want to stop people um, going out and spending money. I mean, that's right. not thrilled about that either. Do you want to remove all joy from your life for starters, but also do you want to start actually pointing out which sectors people should start, you know, abandoning in droves? I don't think that that would be a particular, particularly popular. It is interesting though, right? So Phil Lowe, the RBA, has said we need to get uh, inflation back into the kind of normal territory of between 2 and 3%. Now it's about 7% heading to 8% now. So it's clearly it's skyrocketing and there are so many reasons for it, as you point out. But I think in terms of this um, idea of discretionary spending, how household consumption is changing, there is a bit of a lag. So the RBA is using interest rates to try and bring down inflation. It's done it before. It's doing it again. It hasn't really had much impact yet, but there is this notion that it takes a few months for any increase in interest rates to filter through to your mortgage repayments to then sort of hit borrowers. But I think ultimately... Uh, Phil Lowe is hoping that the pain of higher rates will start to alter spending behaviour. It hasn't yet. Like ABS stats out this week showed that household spending in September was nearly 20% higher when compared to pre-pandemic levels. The biggest increases were things like clothing, footwear, recreation, culture. But there's been another study this week come out to show that consumer confidence is starting to wane. So perhaps it is starting to filter through. That and I mean, Jane, it also might worried. just be partly cyclical, mightn't it? I mean, you know, the conservative economists during the pandemic were saying we have to be very careful here. Demand is suppressed artificially because everyone's staying inside. Yes. We're pouring huge amounts of money into people's pockets to keep them going. When we take the lid off this thing, there's a very real risk that we're going to have runaway inflation. I mean, that was being said in 2021 by conservatives who were poo-pooed by a lot of people on the left for, for being doom mongers and for wanting to snatch away people's benefits uh, during the, the pandemic. Now we have a, two years of pent-up demand. We're all having a bit of a party and presumably, hopefully, that party dies down and subsides once people have flushed some of that excess uh, capital out of the out of the system and flush some of the excess joy out of their veins and, and reach <laughs> some kind of new equilibrium. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's a really good point, though, because that is another hangover from the COVID pandemic. Households, according to the RBA, actually have a lot of savings. Some households, I might say, have savings that they've built up. So that is also filtering through. So I think you're exactly right. We can't sort of treat this like a regular uh, environment where you can just jack up interest rates and assume that inflation will come down immediately as a result because there are so many different weird factors at play here.
And energy, as we mentioned, is a big driver of inflation. Ruth asks, can you tell me in layman's terms how the war in Ukraine affects our soaring energy costs when we own and produce our own energy? This is a really good question. And look, I think everybody understands how the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia are driving up global gas and oil prices. But but Ruth is kind of nailing the conundrum here. Why then does it push up the price of Australian gas, Australian coal? Josh, what's the answer? Well, I mean, the simple answer that economists tell me, and I'm not an economist, so I don't really understand why, is that it's a global market. And so you pay prices according to a global market. And we do not, as a nation, earmark a particular portion of our own assets and resources for ourselves. Uh, we sell them on a global market, and therefore they fetch the prices that, they're, that they can fetch on that global market. But I mean, I'd like to sort of dig deeper into Ruth's question and ask why it is the case that we're not giving ourselves a bigger slice of the pie of our own national resources. I mean, I think one of the great, you know, the front page of The Australian this morning has a piece about the federal Labor government risking a new row with miners over a possible coal and gas tax. Now, they're going to be meeting in Cabinet discussing the possibility of a new tax on thermal coal and gas producers, which would just be temporary and would be aimed at reducing domestic energy prices and easing pressure on low-income households, right? Why is it the case that since... Kevin Rudd, we've never had a serious attempt. I mean, obviously, there's a political, partisan, electoral answer to this question, but what is the policy explanation for why we've never tried to do what Norway or Alaska have done, where they actually take a share of their own resources by taxing the super profits of their resource companies that extract resources? I mean, in Norway, they've been taxing the profits of their oil and gas industry at 78%, Since the 1990s, they've created the world's largest sovereign wealth fund that now invests in foreign stocks and bonds and real real estate and renewable energy infrastructure for them because they regard the natural resources that are in their ground as something that they own in common, not as private ownership. In Alaska, they tax it and they just send checks to every resident. This year, in 2022, the Alaska dividend, their oil dividend, was $3,284 US to every household. Well, I think you said it yourself. Um, there's the policy argument, which might be thin, and then there's the, the political uh, case here as well. Uh, and clearly that's weighing on uh, Labor's mind here as well, those who have memories of the whole mining tax experience under the Rudd and Gillard governments. But The language from Anthony Albanese, even just this morning when he was on AM, Jane, you would have been listening to this as well. You know, he's not committing to anything yet. Everything's still being looked at. But he did talk about these big profits uh, and and consumers doing it really tough. So he's drawing that link now. It's a little seed, isn't it, that we can um, add to this question of where the government's going on this. Clearly the case with these uh, super gas profits at the moment, the the case for some form of, 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 of greater taxation share of that is getting stronger. Absolutely. And he's got cover, right? Because this week, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy even intervened in this debate to tell the government to intervene in the energy market. And he made that precise point that off the back of this war in Ukraine, we have oil and gas producers in Australia who are making an absolute mozza. And meanwhile, households are struggling to pay their power bills and will continue to struggle because they're only going up from here. So I think that there's kind of two aspects to this, right? There's the taxation element. The government has clearly laying the groundwork to increase the 
petroleum resource rent tax. It's also now clearly looking at a possible windfall tax, so taxing those super profits that companies are making right now off the back of the war in Ukraine. But Jane, that, sorry, though, would those be would those be temporary taxes? Because I thought the PM in September said basically ruled out a mining tax and said that you know times have changed since the Rudd era. Well, I think that the windfall tax would be temporary if that is indeed what they go down the path of. Because can I, can I just say, everything the government says is on the table, but in terms of the PRRT, that's an existing tax. So if they make changes within that, you know, increase it basically, they could do that without breaking faith with the Australian people. If there is to be a super profits tax, a windfall tax, that is much more likely to be temporary. But if you talk to people in the energy market, in terms of bringing prices down immediately, which is what needs to happen to avoid this 56% forecast increase over two years, well, then we're talking things like price caps, export controls. And so it's not super clear at this stage precisely where the government will land because any intervention is damaging to the industry, but also pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I understand all that, and I'm sympathetic to to the the small bore criticism of rate, of energy price increases and why the government isn't doing something about it. But I just think we are also at risk of missing the bigger picture here. Like, okay, so if there's a fifty six percent increase in your energy bill, suppose your energy bill is a couple of hundred bucks a quarter. You're talking about an extra hundred bucks a quarter. You're talking about a few hundred bucks a year. Sure, that hurts. But in Alaska, they're getting three thousand two hundred dollars a year back from their their ta- from the tax that their their super profits tax. So when the prime minister says that we can't go back to a, a Rudd era super profits tax because times have changed, I mean maybe times have changed electorally, but nothing's changed economically and nothing's changed policy wise to argue against the possibility of being able to recoup some of the massive profits that resource companies are extracting from our land. We'll see where the government lands on all of that. Just kidding back to Ruth's question, though, to explain why prices go up domestically. Gas is a pretty good example here of why we're seeing this, right? They, they the, the big LNG exporters say they're selling one day for $10 a gigajoule. Price goes up globally. They can sell their gas for $30 a gigajoule, for example. Um, yes, they make commitments to keep a certain amount in Australia under you know what's called the Heads of Agreement and the Domestic Gas Reservation Scheme, but they don't have to keep that at any any particular price, right? So they can sell that in Australia uh, for that thirty dollars a gigajoule. Same, they're selling it internationally. Um, because they can, because there's demand for it internationally at that price. So that's what's causing uh, the problem here. There's no, right now, there's no requirement on them to keep it below any particular price cap, which is why the government's looking at all of that right now. The only other aspect that I'd add is coal. At the moment, coal supplies about 50 to 60% of the national energy market. So it's a huge chunk of it. And our coal-fired uh, power stations are ageing, they're not operating at capacity, and some of them are having to source their coal from overseas, which means that they are part of this global market, once again, sourcing really expensive coal. So that also makes coal really expensive right now, as well as gas. So it's all a bit of a mess. Let's move on to a question from Keith, who asks, from all news sources, not just the ABC, I gather... Uh, that the retroactive response to the floods, political and practical, has been quite good. But I see little mention of any group of sensible people planning anything proactive to prepare for the next flood season. Do we have one? What are they doing? Will temporary levies become permanent? Will roads be raised above the next flood level? Will, uh, Will other crucial infrastructure be more robust? Will we just buy ourselves a bigger 
too hard basket. All right, series of questions there from Keith, which, uh, Josh, I'll put to you first. They essentially boil down to why are we always acting after the event, not doing more before? Look, I still get goosebumps on my flesh when I remember being on the air in the early days of 2020 during the bushfires and the sense of frustration that I was channeling from talkback callers in the inability of the government to look like it was getting on the front foot and getting ahead of what the next thing that the fires were going to do is. And I still feel that on a macro level, that sort of micro error is playing out. We're always playing catch up. It's always a game of whack-a-mole. And we haven't quite gotten our heads around the fact that the 21st century is going to be quite unusual weather-wise. And we have to be putting in place climate resilience in addition to climate action. And I I sort of blame the left on this as much as conservatives, because I do feel that there are a couple of blind spots on the climate activist left. Uh, One of them is nuclear, and we can go into that whole question another day, but whether or not there's a role to be played for for nuclear in getting uh, carbon emissions down as quickly as as we possibly can, whilst also maintaining baseload power. But the other is on climate mitigation strategies and climate resilience tactics, where you know, climate activists can sometimes fear that that's the thin edge of the wedge towards not doing anything on reducing emissions because it sort of implies that we can live with climate chaos. But the reality is there is no way that we're going to avoid one and a half degrees of warming. We're already at 1.2 over pre-industrial levels. Even if we stopped emitting any emissions right now, we'd still get up to 1.5 and beyond. So the reality is the world is going to be more chaotic and more difficult. There are going to be more stresses on our environment than there have been in the past. And I do think we need a big plan to get real about that and to prepare in advance for the bushfires and floods that we know are going to be more intense over the course of the rest of this century. Yeah, Jane, Labor in the campaign, particularly Murray Watt, you know, we had a series of floods and, and of course, those those bushfires earlier. Uh, was Labor was talking a lot about doing more, uh, you know, tapping the fund that's there to spend more on resilience and so on. Are we seeing that yet or is this still a bit too early days? Yeah, we're starting to see it, actually. You notice in the budget, I mean, these cascading natural disasters have really prompted yet again a wide-ranging discussion about how we prepare and live with this more extreme climate. So in the budget, you saw $3 billion. Like that is a huge amount of money in one budget to be poured into a contingency reserve just for the East Coast floods uh, we've just endured. Uh, Beyond that, though, the Albanese government has really put this as a focus of their emergency management response. So Murray Watt, the minister, is promising to spend $200 million every year. That's to build things like flood levees, seawalls, cyclone shelters, evacuation centres and fire breaks. So that's looking at the kind of emergency end of it. And in return, he's hoping that insurers might start to reduce their premiums uh, because we, of course, hear stories every time there's a natural disaster that people in these high-risk areas can't afford the huge premiums that are being added to their policies. So that insurance issue is one that is certainly up for discussion. But I think beyond that, when it comes to planning laws, when it comes to people who have built on floodplains, buying back houses, helping people pack up and leave in our, you know, well-functioning federation, that is very much in the remit of state and local governments. And so I think in different states, you'll see very different responses. Yeah. Although when it comes to uh, New South Wales, Lismore in particular, Josh, the federal government's been involved there too, hasn't it? In um, buybacks and efforts to relocate some of those in in flood prone areas. 
Yep, and then you get into a question of moral hazard as well and what extent people should be able to be absolved of the risk of, of buying on floodplains and buying in vulnerable uh, environments. We sort of have to have a hard conversation with ourselves as a community about the extent to which we collectively want to bail out uh, the, the, the risks of individuals in a world that's getting increasingly dangerous. And there will come a point, uh, and we haven't reached it yet, but there will come a point at which public sympathy for people who are victims of natural disasters gives way to a, a tipping point of frustration about the collective costs that we're that we're shouldering to help them to recover. And you know, I don't know what you do when you reach that point. No, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Look, let's just squeeze in one final question quickly from Angus. I like this one to finish on. Angus says the VCE Australian politics exam is on this Monday in Victoria as seasoned political professionals. Do you have any words of wisdom to impart onto us novices entering the exam? Look, I I didn't study politics at high school. I don't think I don't think it was offered as a subject uh, back then at high school. But look, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, Angus, you would know all you need to know about politics. I'm sure of that. <laughs> look, in, in all seriousness, I think if you are interested in politics or journalism, the most important thing you can do is consume as much of it as you can, as much as you find interesting. Pay attention, be curious, and don't stress too much about exams. But uh, Josh, Jane, what's your uh, what's your advice? Well, good luck, Angus, firstly. I think to echo Spears' advice, but I reckon in politics, you've always got to be curious about why people think the way they do because you're going to come and approach every policy with your own kind of preconceived ideas. Be curious about why someone has a view that maybe is different to yours. But on a more sort of practical level, the Parliamentary Library and the Parliamentary Education Office are both brilliant sources of information, both uh, in terms of deep dives into policy and easily digestible explainers on things like parliamentary procedure, which it's all despite you too. call it, it's all online. It's amazing. And despite, you know, this seasoned political professional tag, I still struggle with political, uh, you know, Senate procedures and things. So it's so hard to get your head around. But those are two really great resources if you just need a, you know, a quick skim online. That's really good advice. Mm, great advice, Jane. Mine's a little bit more whimsical and philosophical, which is just that if you're going to go into politics, I would exhort you, I would plead with you to lead with values and then have the values lead to policies and then have the policies lead to some kind of pragmatic attempt to implement them. There is a lot of political argy-bargying uh, and the journalists love playing the game of uh, you know the horse race as well and a lot of kind of let's start with the pragmatic political solution and the political alliance and the backslapping and backscratching and move from there on to what policies we can get done. And then the values are sort of, uh, you know, that, that it's a cart before the horse situation where, you, where yeah. you're doing process <laughs> rather than doing values. Like figure out what you actually are aspiring for. Shoot for the stars. You know, try to play a role that's constructive, that, that seeks to create a vision of the future that excites you and that, that motivates you. And then the, the the logistics and the how you get it done uh, will will follow from that. And in terms of actually taking the exam, my dad uh, always told me a, a great piece of advice when you're nervous and you're about to do public speaking or you're going to go for an audition or you're going to do a, a, an exam. He said, go in with a warm heart and a cool head, not a cold heart and a hot head. 
Oh, I like that. Oh, that's lovely. I like that a lot. Some great <laughs> advice there for Angus and anyone else who's got that exam on Monday. Good luck to you all. Look, uh, we do try to be constructive on this podcast and hopefully we've helped with some explanations and answers to some terrific questions. But uh, Josh and Jane, great to talk to both of you. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan, Sam Dunn and Robin Powell. Please send us your questions. You can do that via the ABC Listen app or you can send an email to back to you podcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.